As they are heading for the doors, you can turn with me again to the book of Genesis, specifically Genesis chapter 6. We're going to do something a little bit different this morning. We're going to actually try and cover three chapters, or most of three chapters, which means unless we wanted to spend 30 minutes listening to me read through three chapters, we're going to be touching down in different sections of those three chapters. So we're not going to read the whole text up front like we normally would. We're going to drop in and kind of grab some key parts of it to give us a sense of the overview. But before we do that, before we turn to Genesis 6, let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, it is a privilege and honor to sing Your praises this morning. To join in the song of creation, the song that Your heavenly host has been proclaiming for thousands of years. To join in a song that will not cease to sing Your praises and Your glory. It will never stop, Lord. And it should never stop. But now, Lord, we ask that You would prepare our hearts to receive from Your Word. Lord, we want to sing with confidence. And we want to sing with knowledge. And we want to sing with, with head and heart both combined. And Lord, to do that, we need to hear from You. We need to be taught by You. And Your Word does that. Your Word is Your gracious provision to us. And so now we ask, be active in the preaching of Your Word. Let Your Spirit come and enter into our hearts and stir us up to obedience and to joy at the gift You give us in Your words. We pray this in Your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, I still remember it. It was a choice that was sitting in front of me. I was only 18 years old, so I wasn't very old, and it was a, a fairly significant choice, especially for an 18-year-old, but it was coming to the end of my freshman year of college. So I had basically been away from home for two and a half months, and it was that point in the freshman year where it was now time to register for the spring semester's classes. And the way most schools do it is there's a whole like setup for registration. The seniors, if you have seniority, you get to register first, so you get the pick of the best classes. My wife Hannah, her good friend of the family, was a registrar. So every semester she gets to go before anyone else in the school and sign up for her classes. So her classes, like second semester, sophomore year, she's in with like all these seniors and we all just kind of despised her for that. Not really. That's maybe an overstatement. She got to cut in line. The rest of us had to go through this like super anxious, nerve-wracking process of kind of filling out, these are the classes I'm going to try and sign up for, and then you kind of watch and see like as they close and get more and more full. And so you had like your first plan and like your first backup plan and your, your second backup plan and then that third one. And then there's like, if everything just falls apart and you can't get into anything, I guess I'm going to be taking five gym classes in the spring. <laughs> But I remember sitting there and I had like the, they got this like plan where you kind of chart out, okay, you're, you're this kind of major and so you're going to take these classes and this is when you should take the classes. I'm trying to figure out how, how am I going to get this done in four years? And as you look at the classes, there'd be multiple professors offered for each class. And you kind of figured it out unless you were totally clueless. Certain professors were easier than other professors. And certain professors were really easy. And so I was sitting there, 18 years old, this decision is fully in my hands. My parents aren't going to make it for me. I get to decide, who am I going to take? And, and there was this sort of looming opportunity in front of me. I, I could take the easy path. I could avoid the hard professors. I could try to make sure that my, my GPA stayed pristine, just coast through the spring semester. Or I could man up. I could do what I was actually at college to do. 
Try to receive an education. Actually try to get my money's worth out of these classes. But I knew if I did that, I'd be taking harder professors and it would be more work. Be more dangerous to my GPA. And so I took a deep breath. Probably several. Probably several versions of the schedule. But I took the plunge. And I decided I would go for the hard classes. I would take the hard professors. I would seek to learn from the best. And the challenge was absolutely worth it because those professors were harder, but they were harder because they were the best teachers and the best educators, and they pushed you beyond what you thought your limits were. And you walked away and you knew you knew more and you'd learn more than the students who had cut the corner and and taken the easy class. I knew I was getting a richer education than I would have otherwise gotten. Now, why do I take us all back to Minneapolis in 2000? Because I think sometimes we can face the same thing with the Old Testament. We can sort of chicken out. Like a college kid at the registrar's office, when it comes to reading and studying and preaching from the Old Testament, we can take the easy road. Ah, the Old Testament, I know it's there. I know it's a big chunk of the Bible, but the New Testament seems so much easier. It makes so much more sense. The books are so much shorter. The names are like semi-pronounceable. But if we do that, if we skirt around the Old Testament, we don't just get a shallow education. We get a shallow understanding of the Gospel. That's what's at stake. We're still, we might end up like a growing number of Christians today who approach the Old Testament more like the Marcionite heresy in the early church. Now, Marcion was a bishop in the early church and and he developed a philosophy and an approach to the Old Testament where he regarded it actually as the testimony regarding another God. And said the Old Testament actually has nothing to do with Christianity. It's not the Christian Bible. Only the New Testament matters and applies to today. And he treated the two Testaments as if they weren't just a little bit different, but that they should be totally separated from each other. The Old Testament are stories about this nasty, vengeful, tribal deity It's incompatible with the loving, compassionate God that we see in Jesus in the New Testament. Now, he got declared a heretic for a reason. The early church saw that and heard that and saw that this doesn't work. There is an inherent interconnectedness between these two Testaments. They stand together. Now, most of us today wouldn't be so overt, so bland, so so brash in the way we would treat the Old Testament, would we? We wouldn't pretend it's like another God completely. We wouldn't say it has nothing to do with our Bibles. We don't walk around with just the New Testament, right? Most of us have the full Bible. But we can act that way. There can be a similar logic. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about the Hebrew Bible. Don't ever call the Old Testament the Hebrew Bible. The Old Testament is not the Hebrew Bible. There's not some extreme discontinuity between the Old and the New. That's not the way it works. The Old Testament is the Christian Bible. It's the Scriptures. It's our Bible. Whenever we see God revealed in the Old Testament, and sometimes we see Him there, and it makes us a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? The things we read about and hear about. When that happens, we can't just parrot the solution I heard recently. Somebody was kind of discussing with someone else what do you do with this Old Testament God? And they, and they get, well, you know, I'm just sort of a New Testament Christian. That's just sort of my testament. That's how I resolve the tension. 
that's a dangerous thing. As if, as if God has changed or as if it's now totally, you know, Israel and Moses, you know, they, they kind of knew some stuff, but there's a bunch of stuff that they just didn't get right. Or it's just not quite accurate. I mean, really, you think about it, it's way long ago. I mean, everybody back then was ignorant. They're not as intelligent as we are now. That's the kind of stuff that sits in those sort of mindsets. Jesus would never say stuff like that. I mean, sure, he says all the scriptures testify about him and that he'd fulfill all of them. But yeah, I guess there's a lot of language you'd say in the New Testament that talks about judgment. And in Revelation, Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. But I'm telling you, it's a totally different thing. Well, that's not the way we should approach it. Listen, Jesus doesn't need to be made politically correct. And we can be tempted to treat the Old Testament that way. As if it needs to be scrubbed and manipulated to make it fit with the new. Well, guess what? Jesus didn't need a publicist. He doesn't need a publicist. He's doing just fine all by himself. And actually, Jesus predicted that the world would have a serious problem with both his message and his kingdom, right? Which means it's not Jesus who needs tweaking. It's our skittish attitudes. And it all goes back to how we treat the Old Testament. Which is why we're doing this series, Testify. We're going back to the Old Testament and saying, how is this, as God's Word, a testimony, a pointing forward, a foreshadowing of all the different ways Jesus would complete this narrative of Scripture? Where do we see Jesus in this ancient text? given to this Hebrew people. Because it's not just for the Hebrew people, it's for all people. And it's especially for Christian people. So that's what we're doing with this series. And this morning, we're going to continue that, showing how the Old Testament is integral to our understanding of Jesus and the New Testament. So we're going to continue the series, Testify. We're going to jump forward in the story, though. Last week, we started the series, and we looked at Genesis 1 in Creation. So we started in Genesis 1. We're actually going to skip over a really significant part of the story. And and I feel bad for doing it, but like I said last week, we're not going to hit everything in this series, and we're actually in some ways going to skip over some major pieces. Not that they're not important, but I want to show you how some of these places where we tend not to see Jesus also point to Him. So we're going to skip over Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is the fall. So you've got creation, everything's perfect, it's good. God's people in God's place under God's rule, the fall. Sin, the serpent, deceives Adam and Eve. They get sent out of Eden. No longer God's people in God's place under God's rule. We're going to jump forward. Creation in Genesis 3 gets dragged into disorder. Sin enters because of Adam's disobedience. What we're skipping over, though, is also a promise promise God makes that He will set things right. And He makes that promise in reference to a seed. He says the seed of woman, the seed of Eve, a descendant of the first mother, will overcome the seed of the serpent. Someone to come later in the story will overcome all the brokenness that Satan, the serpent in the garden, brings about. That's what we're skipping over. That's a brief summary of it. The story continues 
with Noah. So we're fast-forwarding now, Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, dropping into Genesis 6 to 9, which is okay, because there's actually tons of generations and almost a thousand years that gets covered in two chapters, just sort of as a flyby over the top of it. And all of a sudden, the narrative slows back down again when we hit Noah. And Noah comes, if you read the genealogies, exactly halfway between Adam and Abraham. So if you talk about major characters in Genesis, Noah is exactly halfway between the first man and then Abraham, the father of Israel. So that's where we find ourselves this morning. I had an Old Testament professor in seminary who said, one of the ways you could summarize the themes of Genesis would be to say, in Genesis you're going to see the sovereignty of God, you're going to see the seriousness of sin, and you're going to see the grace of God. And that could be a little bit of an oversimplification. But what he's saying is those are three significant themes that just come again and again and again in this first book of the Bible. And we're going to see all three of those in today's story in Genesis 6-9. to And we're going to do, it's, it's a narrative and it's tons of verses so we can't read it all. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you four scenes that unfold within the narrative. I'm going to start out with each scene. I'm going to give you a description of the scene. We'll read a, a text that shows us a little bit what's happening there. We'll walk through what happens. And at the end of each scene, we'll say, what's the point? What's something we learn about God? What's something we see pointing to Jesus? So, scene one. What do we see? Scene one, God decides to clean house. In Genesis 6, verse 1, we read, Hear God's holy and authoritative word. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as their wives as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Skipping to verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. There's a reason why God decides to clean house in Genesis 6. Because evil is everywhere. It's a total perversion of God's original intention. Remember what He says to Adam and Eve? We talked about it last week in the garden. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Go out. Multiply. Fill this creation. And in doing so, you're going to be blessed because you're obeying me. Well, here we see they have been fruitful, right? But instead of being fruitful and multiplying and extending blessing, they're being fruitful and multiplying and extending curse. Things are getting worse the more they multiply. It's total insurrection against the Creator. That's everywhere, and it's in every person, and it's increasingly getting darker and more perverse. Verse 2 actually echoes the fall, literally. The Hebrew reads, they saw it was good, and they took it. It's describing a series of temptation. They saw it was good, it was attractive, and they took it. And it's a direct echo, a direct reference to Genesis 3.6, where Eve sees the fruit, and it's attractive, and she takes it. 
Moses is showing us. It's repeating the pattern of Genesis 3. It's repeating the pattern of the fall. That This pattern has been going on and on and on for generations. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. Cain's descendants seem way more influential than Seth's. We skipped over it, but it talks about Cain's descendants will be cursed and they'll bear the mark of his sin for having killed his brother Abel. But then Adam and Eve have another son, Seth, and it's through Seth's descendants that, that the blessing and the seed is preserved. But in this text, it's Cain's descendants who have the influence and have the numbers and who seem to just dominate the picture. What happened to the seed of the woman? Every generation asks the question, where's the curse breaker? And then the generation stopped asking. Stopped caring. Instead, it seems like the seed of the serpent is increasing in number and wickedness. And it says in Genesis 6 that God sees it all. God sees all of it. Now, the sense that we get there when he decides he's going to come, he's going to clean house, it's this, not the sense he just kind of looks down at earth and says, ah, whatever, let's just knock him out. The sense of God seeing it, it carries this connotation that he explores it. He looks over all the earth and he exhaustively gathers all the evidence. He's careful. He's meticulous. This isn't just a knee-jerk reaction on God's part. You could read verse 7 and out of context you could look at it and just think, man, God is sort of a moral monster. He's going to blot everybody out? He's going to rip life away from them? Boy, he's, he's radically different than the God I read about when I see Jesus. But look at the text. God's not malicious. It says he's mourning. It says his heart is grieved over the evil he sees everywhere. Now, one of the interesting things about the flood is that this isn't the only place we hear about a flood. One of the great testimonies, aside from it being in the Bible, about the historicity of the flood, the fact that it really happened, well, there's a couple of them. First of all, the way that the text reads, we're not going to get into this this morning, there's tons of details about when things happen in the sequence within the year as this flood gets unveiled. And so there's this level of detail that makes it seem like this is really accurate history. Another piece that shows us this is real history is this isn't the only place we read about the flood. There's all sorts of other flood accounts in the ancient world. Now, why would all these different peoples in different parts of the world have details about this massive flood event? Well, there's no internet. It's not like they're, they're sending emails or they all subscribe to the same blog. It's because there was a flood. Well, these other accounts try and make sense of why was there a flood? Why does this happen? Well, their ideas about the flood shed a lot of light on who their gods are. In one account, the reason for the flood is because they'd created humanity and it just exploded and the population got huge. And so the flood is essentially a massive form of population control. In another one, the reason for the flood is because they, they create humanity and humanity just gets really noisy. And it's just, they're kind of just plugging their ears thinking, what are we going to do? Just send a flood. Just, just make, them sh make them be quiet. Make them shut up. I, I don't want to hear it. Those are visions of God, of gods, that are malicious, that are arbitrary, that are evil. But that's not the God we see here. 
The flood isn't God's attempt at crowd control. Genesis explains the real reason. God vows to send the flood in 120 years. I think that's how you should translate that. I don't think he's saying, after this point, people are only going to live 120 years. Because after this, there's still characters in the Old Testament who live a long time. What he's saying is, and the Hebrew can be translated this way, he's saying, in 120 years, I'm going to give another 120 years, and then I'm going to come, and there's going to be a judgment. In 120 years, I'm going to come. And it's not because things are too noisy. It's not because there's too many people. I wanted there to be a lot of people. I wanted humanity to fill this place. I'm going to become. There's going to be judgment. Because sin is out of control. He sees the trajectory of his pristine creation. And he decides to withdraw his life-giving spirit. It's not vindictive. It's not a cruel God looking to just stick it to creation because it's kind of fun and he's bored on Saturday night. It's astonishing how patient God is. There are generations, hundreds of years that have passed since the fall. And things are only getting worse. And here God could just... I mean, He could have ended it all right at the fall, right? All right, Adam and Eve. You saw, it looked good, you took, you disobeyed. End of story. But he promises to redeem and restore. And here he is again. It's been going bad. It's off the rails. He could step in right here and say it and do it. Instead, he gives a warning. In 120 years, I'm going to come and there's going to be judgment. He's remarkably patient. God is bringing judgment only after carefully and exhaustively examining the situation. But for all His forbearance and grace, we also see there comes a point. There comes a tipping point when evil has to be dealt with. Because right now the stewards of creation have become its corruptors. Here's the point of scene one. God hates sin. God hates sin. He is patient. And He waits. He is long-suffering. But not at the cost of His holiness. He won't allow sin to go unrestrained and unpunished forever. There's a real way in what God does in the flood, there's a real sense in which He's actually putting creation out of its misery. By sending the flood and wiping things clean, He's putting creation out of its misery. Creation might not know it. These people might not know it. But what they're doing is so destructive and perverse that it actually warrants it be better that they're wiped out. That's the first scene. God decides He's going to come. He's going to clean house. Scene two. We see now, God isn't just going to come and clean house. He also has an evacuation plan. Scene two, we see God's evacuation plan. Now, since the advent of the Cold War, now some of you kids are like, what's the Cold War? Well, thankfully the Cold War is now sort of a a really Cold War. (laughs) When the Cold War started, though, after World War II, and you had nuclear powers proliferating around the globe, 
the government, rightly, the Pentagon, set up procedures in case of a nuclear holocaust. So if somebody got an itchy trigger finger and pushed the red button over in Moscow, and that triggered just nuclear fallout going all over the place and missiles bombarding everybody, there was a plan set in place, an evacuation plan. Now part of the plan was you had kids in the 50s in elementary school, if you can imagine this, they'd have drills where they had to hide underneath their desks. A nuclear bomb's coming! Hide underneath your little plywood desk, it'll save you. That was the evacuation plan for everybody. The presidents and important people actually got a better evacuation plan. They dug huge holes into the sides of mountains and in these massive places where they could withstand nuclear attack. And, and at the first sign of a first strike, there were plans in place, evacuation plans, where important people were whisked off to these secure locations with the thought being, as everybody else gets obliterated, these people underneath the mountains are going to be safe. And with all the food and stores they need, once all the radiation filters away, they can emerge. They can repopulate. Those sort of plans are a little bit similar to what God is doing in Genesis 6. This is God's evacuation plan. He doesn't have to evacuate anyone. The first part of the passage makes clear it's not just a couple people that are being really bad. It's not like there's just a couple Hitlers on the scene and God just says, you know what? Forget it. I'm getting rid of all of them. It's everybody. But in an act of grace, He chooses to save Noah. Listen to what it says. In verse 6, 6 verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Can't say it really any more ways, can you? It was bad. And God said to Noah, verse 13, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with the violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And then in verse 17 he says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which the breath of life is under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you You shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. Verse 22, it says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. With an earth overrun with violence, God tells Noah, I'm going to destroy it all. But Noah, we read, verse 9 tells us, How is he described? He's righteous. He's blameless. He walks with God. So God prepares an evacuation plan in advance of the coming purge. Now at first blush, you read that and you think, Noah gets saved because when God looks over all the earth and He sees all the evil, He's also like scouring the earth in every corner like, just find me one guy. I made this promise. I was going to have a seed. I need at least one person that I can kind of perpetuate this seed through. Oh, Oh, Noah, we found the one guy. You can kind of read it and think that, can't you? That, that's not how it goes. The description of Noah's righteousness comes after another description. Yeah, he's 
a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. But right before that, we have verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, favor is the same word as grace. So Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There's a direction to this. There's a direction to what Moses is showing us. It's not God examining Noah and deciding, he's holy enough to save. Thank goodness I'm off the hook. I can keep my word. I've been waiting all this time because I needed just one guy, and I finally have him. The guy who's never sinned. No, that's not it. Remember, the earth is evil, and the evil is everywhere. It's just said that in the preceding verses. Noah's not an exception to that rule. He's a sinner just like his neighbors. He has the same forefather in Adam. He has the same sin nature that's been handed down through Adam. He's played his part in the corruption of creation. Noah is righteous only when he gets compared to the rest of his generation. That's not a huge compliment. That's like Moses saying, Noah is the holiest man on death row. You look at death row, man, and this guy Noah, he really stands out. They're all, they're all guilty, but man, Noah, of all the murderers, he's the nicest one. He's the one you want to have lunch with. That's not what it's saying. It's not a ringing, this isn't like the Shawshank Redemption where you've got this one guy unjustly accused, thrown in with the other convicts, and it's just this, this sad story, and then, he, and then he finds his way out, and it's like, oh, thank goodness Noah gets out. Noah's innocent. No, this is a creation filled with rebels and rule breakers. And Noah's one of them. Same parents, Adam and Eve, as everybody else. Want to know why God picks Noah? Because God's grace finds Noah. You could say because God's grace chooses him. Noah looks into God's eyes, and instead of destruction, he looks into God's eyes and he finds favor. He finds grace looking back at him. So we found our hero. But it's not Noah. The hero of Genesis in the Old Testament isn't the story of human heroes. Now, there are some heroes in there, but they're only heroes in their connection and relationship to the bigger hero. The hero of the story is a holy, heroic, gracious, and patient God. God's not a monster in Genesis 6-9. to He's the one that ensures that a humanity that should get wiped off the face of the earth is preserved. Now, He's called righteous and He's called blameless. And He is those things. When the Old Testament talks about righteous and blameless, language it uses is about men like David that we know also had their flaws. It's not saying they're perfect. It's not saying they're without sin. It's saying when they see their sin, they move away from it. They walk with God. They see sin and they see the direction of the world and they say, I want to be close to God who is going the opposite direction. By grace, Noah becomes the anti-Adam. He doesn't continue in his sin. And after grace breaks in, Noah reorients himself away from his neighbors, away from the world, not because he hates them, but because he doesn't want to be destroyed. And by grace, he's now seeing his sinfulness and he moves towards God. Now, you know how we know this? You know how we see this? You know how we know Noah is gripped by grace? This is such a telling description. You want to examine your own life and say, am I in the grips of God's grace? Am I, am I in the grips of, 
of Him transforming me? Is there righteousness and sanctification and holiness going on in my heart? Multiple times God instructs Noah in this passage. And multiple times we see this, what we see in verse 22. God instructs. Here's the response. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Surrounded by people ignoring God and mocking God, disobeying God, Noah's captured by grace. And we know he's captured by grace because what he hears from God, he obeys. We know Noah's walking with God because when God speaks, Noah responds. When grace beckons, Noah responds with radical obedience. It's the total opposite of Adam, right? Where is Adam? He's in the garden. Who's in the garden with Adam? Well, Eve and the serpent. No, Adam and Eve in the garden. And what happens in the garden? They walk with God. In the coolest, in the garden, God's with them. They, Adam had this description. He is righteous. He's blameless. Adam hasn't sinned. And God walks with him. And when the temptation comes, Adam disobeys. Noah has the sin nature. He's already fallen and screwed things up. But when grace comes, he listens and he hears and he does what Adam doesn't do. And so he's described as walking with God. For a century, now this is something I think is really interesting. I'm convinced that that reference in the early part of chapter 6, talks about 120 years, is a reference to the timetable, not of how long people's lives are going to be, but that it's a reference to how long it's going to be before destruction comes. If that's true, and I think it is, and there's commentators who agree with me, you know how long Noah spends building the ark? Over a century. Which makes sense. I mean, the dude is building a wooden Titanic in the ancient world with hand tools, and he's got a couple sons and their wives. Now, maybe these wives are really good with wood, and they're like really crafty. Maybe they have like Pinterest accounts. It's like, oh, we can make bedrooms, and we can go get this gopher wood is really great with this tool. I don't think that happened. I think you've got Noah, who doesn't have give any indication as a shipbuilder. In fact, the indication is he lives nowhere near a great water source. He's in the middle of nowhere. And he builds a massive boat and he does it for a hundred years. Now, think about what it says about Noah. God instructs him and instructs him and instructs him. And Noah did this. And all that God says, he obeys. Wow, that's really cool, Noah. For like a whole week, you obeyed. And then that whole week became like a whole year and a whole decade and a whole century of obedience. Man, it's been ten years. I'm not even finished with the frame. My splinters have splinters. Do I really? Okay, Lord said it. I'm in the middle of a desert. I mean, there's no water around me. You think there's going to be a flood? Okay, Lord. I don't see. It's your words. So I'll believe. Hebrews 11.7 By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's not the main hero of the story, but Noah is a man to imitate. Here the gospel echoes in Genesis. 
Grace finds Noah. God's grace pursues Noah. Noah believes. God provides an evacuation plan, a divinely ordained way of escape from judgment. He he says, you're going to build this boat. You're going to call it an ark, and it's going to preserve you. And you know what? The world's going to think it's foolish, and they're going to think you're crazy. For a hundred years, your neighbors are going to come and sit on the hillside and say, dude, this guy is a dope. What is he doing? Nice day today, Noah. Sure you don't want to join us with some lemonade? Oh, you're still building the ark? Well, okay. I, I guarantee you this guy got mocked. I guarantee you had moments of doubt. A century of building it. And yet he perseveres. And in all of this, we see the ark is like a cross, something that seems foolish to the world, and yet is the wisdom of God for the salvation of men. And do you notice that only Noah gets described as righteous? It doesn't say his sons are righteous. It doesn't say God searched and searched, and he found Noah, and his sons were perfectly obedient to everything the father said. And the wives loved their husbands, and they had perfect marriages. And the children of the, of the sons and the daughters-in-law were... Per- it's not what it describes. It says Noah. God's grace finds him, and he walks blamelessly, and he gets described as one who is righteous. You know why everybody else gets saved? Because they have a connection to one who God has declared as righteous. A righteous head spares a whole family. Sounds a lot like Jesus, right? The point of scene two, God's grace is greater than sin's evil. Sin is everywhere, and God pours grace on one guy, and it's going to be enough to overcome what sin has done. God refuses to allow evil the last word. He will destroy everything, but by sparing Noah, he maintains his commitment that he will overcome the curse through the seed of the woman. Scene three. God hits the reset button. Scene three, we see the reset button. Now, as a kid, I grew up playing video games, and I should actually give the caveat. Initially, I didn't have video games. I wasn't one of those cool kids. Like, everybody else got Nintendos, and they were out for like 10 years before I got a Nintendo. So I would go to my friend's house, and I would just mooch off their Nintendos and wouldn't play with them outside because they had Mario, and I didn't. When I finally got one, though, it was a Sega Genesis, which is kind of comical. Well, that's what I had, and it was this really cool system. And I was just sort of an anal retentive perfectionist when I would play these games. It wasn't good enough just to kind of do okay. Like, I had to be perfect in the game. And I had to have, like, all of my lives stacked up with the extra lives piling on top. So, you know, if I'm playing, playing Sonic the Hedgehog, it's like I've got this special way in which I'm playing. And I would, I would create these characters at this heavyweight boxing game. And you could make your guys big and green like the Hulk. And so I would always make a huge six foot seven bald green guy. And I would juice up all of his characteristics. But every time he got beat, you know what I would do? Reset. Clear it out. Start over. My green guy is undefeated. He will not. And I will, I will eradicate any reference to his failure from this game. I restarted Sonic. I never conquered Sonic. Maybe I could have. But I refuse to go all the way to the end if I couldn't do it perfectly. Well, this is a hitting of the reset button. Flood is God hitting the reset button. But it's not because of user error. It's because the game itself has a virus. Genesis 7-6. Noah was 600 years old. So 500 years to 600 years, he's been building a boat. Great retirement. When the floodwaters come upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. 
All of the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all of the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed over the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. The flood is not the children's story we make it out to be. We create little songs about an arky, arky. I don't think we do our kids justice when we teach them songs like that. This is the most horrible account of God-wrought destruction in the world to date. There's nothing that compares to this. I was looking online Last night, actually. I didn't put one up for an illustration, but I was thinking of it. I was looking at artwork, famous artwork depicting the flood. And some of the pictures were done in black and white. And you look at them. And I'm not exaggerating here. I was sitting at my computer, and it was unnerving to look and see the depiction of these artists with humans clawing at rocks and trees as water rises. There's one picture where there's like one rock in the middle and there's like three kids sitting on the rock, three or four kids, and the mom and the father are, are in the water and it's about to get them and, and the dad is like pushing the last child up onto the rock. Imagine for a moment being Noah and his family. By the end of the story, you know how long they're in the ark for? 370 days. 40 days and nights the water rises. 110 days it stays at its peak. It takes 150 days to go back down again. And another 70 days before the land is dry and God says, you can now get out. 370 days they are in this boat. They're closed in by the Lord. It says God, God puts them in the ark and He closes the door. He seals it. He protects them. But they're not out of it. They're not like tucked away in a little corner where everything stays dry and, and nothing happens. For over a century, they've built this massive boat and they've been mocked and ridiculed. Crazy old man Noah. He's like an ancient version of those survivalists. You think you're crazy. Come on. He's been mocked for this. His family is, is ostracized stockpiling food and provisions in the case of an apocalypse. This past week, we had to cancel a football game in, in Boulder, Colorado, at the University of Colorado. Now, you host a major college football game, 
you don't flippantly cancel that thing. That's millions of dollars of income that comes to the school. Now, Colorado stinks, so maybe it's a couple hundred thousand dollars of income. But anyway, they had to cancel it because there's a flood. I, I saw pictures of this on the news this week. There's water rushing down what should be streets, except it's not like a street. It's like six times the width of a street, and there's, there's cars being moved by the water. I mean, it's just overwhelming everything. Three people died in the midst of this. You know how much rain fell? Seven inches. Seven inches of rain fell in a rapid way and it overwhelmed the rivers and the things they had set up and it just wreaked havoc on Boulder. Seven inches. This is 40 days and nights. And it's not just coming from up high. It says the earth just starts seeping and gushing water. And Noah and his family are in the middle of this. When the flood comes, Noah's heart has to break. What he experienced in this event is not what we draw little cute murals for. You go to like a, a children's ministry home and it's like, it's like stories of the, of the Bible. And the, the, oh, look at the ark and the animals. There's giraffes and elephants. and It was horrible. Noah doesn't get removed from the judgment of the flood. He's protected from annihilation. But he's not removed from the experience. Inside the boat, he and his family would hear the thunder breaking so loud that the earth literally does shake. For 40 days, they live in terror as their senses, all five of them, are just shocked with the terror of the testimony of the wrath of God against sin. And they're utterly alone. They know when we get off this boat, God, let us get off this boat. There will be no one else. We are it. It's a total purge. What Noah actually experiences is decreation. When God moves to eradicate sin, what you see in the description of the flood is it's echoing what happens in Genesis as there's chaos and God brings order and He, he separates out the waters and he, he makes dry land, right? And, and He starts to populate the waters and the dry land and the heavens. What happens in the flood is the opposite. It's decreation. It's God basically saying, I remove my grace from the situation. And so the seas aren't held back. And they overwhelm and they come up and they eradicate everything that I've made. The flood's just not a massive extension of indiscriminate judgment. God is wiping the table and preparing it for recreation. You see that. He's undoing creation. And then as the waters start to go back down, there's this sense of, Order is being brought back again. Creation is being reestablished. And after 370 days, now think of this, they get on dry land finally, and there's 70 more days they have to stay in the ark. And in this, what does Noah do? He obeys. Get me off of this boat! 70 days! And they stay. And they finally get off. You know what he does first thing he does? He hears from God. God says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is stunning grace. That is stunning grace. You know what's just happened up to this point? They were fruitful and they multiplied and they filled the earth and sin reigned everywhere. 
and God comes and extends judgment on the whole earth. And now it's just Noah and his family, and he gets them off the ark, and he says, you know, kind of keep things under control here, Noah. Got a little crazy last time. You know, maybe just like one kid, two kids per family. Let's kind of have like an order to the... Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. And in doing it, you will receive my blessing. The point of scene three is God's commitment, God's unwavering commitment to His glory. And He is unwaveringly committed to His glory both in the judgment of the flood and in the fact that His plan of redemption can't be thwarted. You see God's glory in the way the earth and creation gets destroyed. That's how serious sin is and how holy God is. And you see His glory in the grace He gives to Noah to keep the story going. Scene 4, last scene briefly. The sign of things to come. Genesis 8.1 is actually the climax of the story. But God remembered Noah. That's the turning point of the story. It serves as the, as the climax of the drama. The water grows and the flood triumphs and creation is overwhelmed with judgment. And then God remembers Noah. Specifically, when, when Scripture talks about God remembering something, it's not God has forgetfulness. It's not like God finds a post-it note he'd left for himself somewhere. Oh yeah, Noah. Oh, it's only 40 days. It's been like 370 now. No, when God says he remembers things, it means he remembers his promise. He gives consideration to one who he's extended grace to. And the rain stops because God remembers. And the flood recedes because God remembers. Every action in the story, every action in this story is the result of God's initiative. The flood comes because God sends it. Noah's saved because God tells him to build an ark. The flood goes down because God says, that's enough. Noah disembarks because God says, okay, you can get out now. All because God initiates. His grace provides salvation for Noah. Now, if you have any doubt about how profoundly Noah has been affected by what's just happened, see what he does when he gets off? His feet hit dry ground and he builds an altar to God. He builds an altar. And not just, oh cool, I built an altar. He then makes sacrifices on it. Now, you read that and you're like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. He did just get spared from, like, apocalypse. What does he sacrifice? Think about that. Everything is gone. The only living things left on the face of the earth are what had just come off the ark with him. Noah is so overwhelmed by coming face to face with God's wrath and so grateful to have been spared that he takes some of these precious animals, what's left to repopulate the whole creation, and he sacrifices some of them on the altar. And in response, God reaffirms the covenant with Noah. He doesn't just reaffirm the covenant with Noah, he then expands it to the whole earth, right? Now, covenant's a big word. 
It's an important word. This is the first time in the Bible the word covenant is actually explicitly used. Covenant describes how God enters into relationship. Covenant describes how God enters into relationship with people and makes promises with them. It's a massively important word. In fact, you could accurately say the story of the Bible is the story of God making and keeping covenants. That's how important the word covenant is. Well, he makes a covenant with Noah. Typically, covenants between God and humans are sealed with blood. That's what we see here, right? There's an altar and sacrifices are made. And it happens. And and God says He smells the burning of the animals and He's pleased. He promises Noah and all the earth. So it's not just Noah. It's not just all of Noah's family. It's all the animals and all the earth. He promises them that He will never again destroy the earth with a flood. I remember my mom teaching me about the flood when I was little and about the rainbow. And like you go out and see like the... The rain, like, oh, that's a rainbow. You know why the rainbow's there? It's a sign from God. It's a promise. So when we see the rainbow, we remember God will never again destroy the world by flood. And it's true. That's accurate. The rainbow is for our assurance. It's a promise. It's a reminder for us. But look closely at 9.16. Who's the rainbow really a reminder for? God says that He will see the rainbow and be reminded of His promise and covenant. Now, we think of a rainbow and we think of this pretty little, oh, it's like something that like funny cartoon characters are associated with. Just a pretty thing that you paint in, in preschool. Well, the Hebrew word for bow, it doesn't say rainbow in the text. You notice it just says there's a bow painted in the sky. We call it a rainbow. The Hebrew word for bow, it's the word battle bow. It's a tool of warfare. And in the hands of God, the Old Testament depicts the battle bow as a way in which God dispenses judgment. In the way in which God dispenses His wrath. Listen how Psalm 7-9 uses the same word. God is a righteous judge. And the God who feels indignation every day. Now think about that for a second. He is a righteous judge. He is holy. He does what is right. He wants to see righteousness and and things that are right succeed. And he feels indignation every day. So when there's not righteous things happening, when there's sin happening, he feels it every day in a way we can't even fathom because he's holy and we're not. Think about his patience now. He's a righteous judge. He feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He will sharpen his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. The imagery we get in Genesis 9 is that a battle bow gets hung in the sky. And here's why it's a promise to us and a reminder to God that He will not destroy the earth again by flood. The battle bow of Genesis 9 is hung and it is strung and it is bent and it is readied. But the battle bow of Genesis 9 is not cocked and aimed at earth. It's pointed towards heaven. It's pointed towards God Himself. It's a reminder and a foreshadowing. It reminds God. It foreshadows there's going to be a cross. You don't have to destroy the earth again. You're going to tell them to be fruitful and multiply. They're going to go out and sin's going to spread all over again. But you can withhold judgment this time. Because the next time you pour out your wrath, you will pour it out on your son. That's what we see in the bow. That one day God is going to loose the battle bow of His wrath. But it won't be loosed on us. 
It's going to be loosed on Jesus. And in the same way the ark saves Noah from destruction, Jesus will be an ark. He will be a shelter in the storm of final judgment. And everyone who's like Noah, who hears the word of God and obediently takes refuge in the place of escape, who takes refuge in Jesus, in the ark of the Son, will be saved. The reason the aroma from Noah's sacrifice is pleasing to God is because he sees in that a foreshadowing of the one sacrifice that will actually prove sufficient to make payment for sin. The language of Noah's sacrifice is a sacrifice, not of thanksgiving, but of atonement. And God smells it. He doesn't think, well, I guess there's only 20 animals left. Those three were precious. I'll accept it. No, he smells it. And he thinks... One day, that will be the scent of my son. And I will have crushed him. And even more than Noah, he will have been perfect and blameless and righteous and totally obedient. And he will absorb all my wrath and he will deflect my wrath from all who hide in him. And so I smell this offering and I think of Jesus and I extend more grace. The hero of Genesis 6 to 9, the whole book, the Old Testament, the hero is God. Grace comes from God. The one who gets rescued is indebted to grace from start to finish. In every plot of the Bible, every plot of the Old Testament, we see more and more clearly how God thwarts rebellion with rescue, how He overcomes our sin with salvation, how He cleanses us of guilt with blood-bought grace. And we see again and again with greater and greater clarity how it all points to Jesus. Would you bow your heads?